Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm your host, Megan Cole. On Writing the Coast, I interview the authors and illustrators whose books have been nominated for the annual prizes. If you're not familiar with the books on the shortlist, you should check out our website. The shortlist includes over 50 authors and illustrators who are nominated for eight different prizes that covers a wide range of amazing book projects. My guest for this episode is nominated for the Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Sabina Khan is the author of the book, The Love and Lies of Roxana Ali. As someone who works with teens and young adults, I often think about the books they're drawn to. I also think about the books that are assigned in their classrooms and the power that these stories have in the lives of teens and young adults. Authors like Leach Elliott and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie have spoken about the power of the single story and the importance of having varied books so that readers can see themselves on the page. The Love and Lies of Roxana Ali came as a response to Sabina wanting to create a story for her daughters. Sabina starts our conversation off with a reading from the beginning of her book. All right, so this is Sabina Khan and I'm reading from my book The Love and Lies of Roxana Ali, chapter one. No parties, no shorts, no boys. These were my parents' three cardinal rules. But what they didn't know couldn't hurt them, right? I quickly changed out of my NASA pajamas and into my favorite black crop top and dark blue vintage jeans, liking the way they accentuated my curves. According to mom, no one needed to know that I had boobs, much less a belly button, except for me, Allah, and my future husband. Of course, the whole no boys rule was a moot point in my case, but fortunately, my parents didn't know about Ariana. Ruxana, mom is never going to let you go out of the house wearing that. Startled, I spun around to see my brother, Amir, leaning lazily against my doorframe. Knock much? I said, quickly pausing the music playing on my phone. I did. It's not my fault you couldn't hear me over that screeching you call music. Amir smiled as he sauntered into the room and plopped down on my bed. Of course, my brother was right. I would never be allowed to go out wearing this, which was why I was planning to throw an oversized school hoodie to, uh, once again, become a shapeless blob my parents preferred to think of me as. Amir, you know this isn't my first rodeo. I ruffled his hair affectionately. Plus, you always have my back, right? Yeah, yeah, don't worry, I'll cover for you, Amir said, pushing away my hand. He was very particular about his hair. But it's going to cost you, he added with a grin. What do you want this time? I pulled the bulky hoodie over my head. Something good, I haven't thought about it yet. He surveyed my outfit. Ariana's going to run away when she sees you, but at least mom will be happy. I punched him playfully in the arm before going downstairs. The smell of chai led me into the kitchen, where I found the pot bubbling on the stovetop. I inhaled its spicy aroma deeply, allowing the cinnamon and cardamom to soothe my nerves. It was almost five o'clock, time to head over to Jen's house to finish getting ready for the party. But first, I had to convince Mom to let me go. She walked out of the study, having just finished with her Asr prayer, absentmindedly rolling up her prayer rug. She wore a faded blue shalvar kameez, 
one of the few old ones she kept for when she cooked. Other than the few gray strands escaping the black bun at the nape of her neck, she looked much younger than she really was. I took a long sip of my tea before placing the cup on the kitchen counter. Mom, don't forget I'm going to Jen's house soon. She removed her headscarf and draped it over the back of a chair. Again? She asked, deepening the worry lines on her forehead. Why, Ruxana? You just went the other day. She picked up the pot and poured herself a cup of chai, taking a careful sip before returning her gaze to me. Mom, I told you, I said with a deep sigh. We have a project due on Monday, and tonight's the only night we're both free to work on it. I waited, a familiar knot forming in my stomach. I hated how I felt right now, like a child asking for just one more cookie. I could almost see the wheels turning in her head as she decided my fate for the evening. I need your help with dinner first. I'm making murgir chol, and your dad will be home soon. You can make the roti and then go. That was that. She turned away to pick out jars of spices from the rack and lined them up neatly on the counter next to the stove. Great. Now I was going to show up to the party smelling of fried onions and garlic. Just what I needed. My phone pinged. Ruxana, get your butt over here. It was Jen. I knew she'd freak out if I was late. I darted a glance at Mom. She was busy chopping onions, her face stoic, as if not even the onions could make her cry. I don't know how she did it. I need another hour. Couldn't get out of kitchen duty. You suck. I pressed the mute button and shoved the phone back in my pocket with a groan. Mom, can't you get Amir to help you tonight? I really need to go. Jen's waiting for me. Mom laughed as she ground some coriander in the mortar with a pestle. Don't be silly. Amir has homework. And you know very well that you need to know, learn how to prepare these dishes yourself. When you're married, who will come and cook for you? As if on cue, Amir strolled into the kitchen and Mom's face lit up. Typical. Mom could be such a cliche sometimes. Of course, she doted on my brother, but me, I had to learn how to cook so I could impress a potential mother-in-law. Deep breath. I had bigger problems at the moment, like how I was going to get out of here, go to Jen's house to put my makeup on for the party and make it back home by curfew, all without making my parents suspicious. Amir sauntered to the dining table and plopped himself into a chair. What's for dinner? Murgir Jol Baba, your favorite. Mom stirred the spices in the pot, wisps of coriander, cumin, and cloves, wafted around the copper pots that hung on the hook near the stove before settling into my hair and clothes. I recalculated in my head the time I would now need to get ready. Shampooing, drying, and straightening my absurdly curly long hair added at least another hour to my departure time. Jen was going to kill me. With a resigned sigh, I gathered my thick hair into a knot, securing it at the nape of my neck with an elastic band from my wrist. I measured out two parts flour to one part water into a large mixing bowl for the roti, casting angry glances at my mother as she kept one eye on the pot. At least kneading the dough for the flatbread was cheaper than therapy. Mom, I really don't have that much homework to do. I can help out, Amir said, unfolding his lanky frame from the chair. No, no, Abu, you go and relax, Mom said. Roxana will help. I glared furiously at my mother. If I had a dollar for every time I'd been treated like Cinderella in this house, I'd be as rich as Prince Charming by now. Thankfully, I only had to endure this for a few more months. Then I was out of here. Thank you so much. It really is a great beginning because it sets up the story so well. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
how this book started and where you drew the inspiration from. Uh, yes, of course. Um, actually, uh, I, I've spoken about this um, a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you've read this somewhere before, but um, my, uh, my daughter was actually the one who inspired me um, when she was my younger daughter, when she was 17, a few years ago, she came out to us as bisexual. And we used to have all these conversations about, you know, what she was going through and at school and with her peers. And she would mention other other teens in her GSA club at school who were having a really hard time either coming out to their parents at all or having come out, you know, feeling safe and and just welcome in their own homes. And I started to think about a girl from a very conservative Muslim family and what she would go through if, you know, she was either caught or outed or if she just wanted to come out to her parents, how that would play out. And I was also inspired by something very sad that was happening in, in Bangladesh around 2016, where there were several LGBTQ members who were brutally murdered simply for existing. And reading about that, you know, and reading about that happening in, in a place where I grew up and I felt very safe and it just broke my heart, really, to think that people had to go into hiding to hide who they were or that they were being murdered and their families had to live with that. And, you know, all of that kind of brought together uh, this sort of story in my head where I thought, you know, I would like to write something like this to show that, you know, j just for teens like my daughter, who, you know, who are, um, you know, people of color who don't unfortunately see themselves very often in books, um, that you know they can they can see themselves they can read about a character who's very much like them, and you know perhaps from a similar situation even if not as dire and extreme, but still you know just just living the kind of life that Roxana's living, with immigrant parents and so so all of that and just being an immigrant myself raising daughters here you know in North America, um, just all of that sort of was the inspiration for this story. I I thought the part that you just mentioned about not seeing, you know, your daughter not seeing characters like her in books is so interesting. And I know that, um, you know, young people are taught the same books, probably since, you know, my parents were in school, they've been reading the same books. And the students don't often see themselves reflected back at them, you know, in the pages. Mm -hmm. What do you... What books do you think teens should be reading and taught in a classroom and, and why is it important to have these kinds of books like the one you wrote? Oh, so many reasons. Don't even get me started <laughs> on this topic. Um, I'm actually, I, I run a tutoring service, so I do help students, um, you know, with, with their courses. Some of them are English courses and and I've been doing this for 25 years and I have to say like they're literally, like you mentioned, they're reading the same four books and they're all written by old dead white men. And, or dead old white men, and um, I just don't see the relevance, I mean, anymore. And yes, there is such a thing as classics, but then I feel like students should, I, I think students would be more engaged if they read something that they could relate to. I feel they would be much more interested and they would understand and they would be more um, invested in, in doing, you know, in, in analyzing these texts. Uh, for example, um, there's Khalid Hussein is the kite runner, you know, Mm -hmm. um, there are um, there are so many um, I can't I mean there's um, uh, Adib Koram's book Darius the Great is not okay there there are so many amazing writers uh, Jason Reynolds Nick Nick Stone 
you know, Dear Martin uh, by Nick Stone, and she has she's written so many other books. Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. Uh, there are so many amazing books that, uh, you know, they, they could be teaching in schools which are relevant, which, invo you know, which include current the current state of our world and uh, that, that really teens could relate to. And they include so many important themes of family, of, of you know, rebellion, of standing up for your rights, of identity, of, of struggling, you know, just whether it's for your identity or whether it's just for your um, just for your life. And I, I, I feel like that those kind of books, it's so important that those kind of books are included in the curriculum. And I think whenever we bring up this sort of argument, the, the biggest pushback is, oh, but no, these are, you know, the, the books that are being taught, those are classics. And there's a place for classics, definitely. And but that doesn't mean you can't include something that's a little bit more contemporary. It doesn't have to be written, you know. It doesn't have to be written like 50 years ago. It, it, you can teach books that are written more recently. And I have actually, I, I had a student whose teacher in grade 11, their novel study was they were able to pick from a list, and one of the books on the list was Khalid Hosseini's mm -hmm. *The Kite Runner*, and. I'd been I tutored the student before for in other grades, and I had never seen her so engaged and so excited to work on her project, to work on her papers. And that's what made me realize that this is, I mean, it's natural, right? Like we we will be more interested to work on something that we can actually imagine and then we can re relate ourselves to, you know, that we feel connected to the lifestyle or the background. Also, there are immigrant stories. I mean, you know, Canada, North America in general, it's full of immigrants. There, there's so many rich immigrant stories, so many interesting themes that are so important for young, you know, for young adults nowadays. Any of those would be amazing. I mean, there, there's Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni. She's, um, she's an American, Indian American writer. There's Rohinton Mystery, who's written a fine balance. It, they're, they're amazing books, and there's so much discussion and so much that. A teacher could, you know, uh, engage the students with it. Just, it's just so easy to, you know, have these kind of analytical discussions, and, and I think that would be so great for students to think critically about the world today, to think critically about their own lives. And I honestly don't know why they're still. I mean, you know, I, I have students whose parents have read the same books that they were re they're reading now in school, and so. It's just, it's a pity. It's a pity that they're not, in, they're not including books that reflect the diversity in the classroom. You know, I watched my kids' uh, classmates for years and wondered why they never get to read books where the characters look like them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a real pity. And it's, it's a really, I think it really um, steals something from them, some opportunities to reflect for, for students who are out, who are not part of that community to learn something, for students who are in those communities um, to share their struggles, to share their joys, to share just knowledge of what their lives are like. Even for the for the other for white students in the classroom too, I think it's so important to have our culture is not monochromatic. So the Absolutely. fact that we're only told white stories in a classroom and read stories about white characters, it's just, exactly. it doesn't reflect the communities we live in. At all. Absolutely. And it's, it's really, I feel like it's almost damaging because when you, I mean, I, I grew up in a time when there were no books about anyone other than white, white people. 
And I, I didn't realize that that was not normal. Like, I just thought that this is how it is. You know, when I was younger, and I didn't realize until I was older, when I first read a story, I was 26 years old, when I first read this story called Arranged Marriages by Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni. And I was just, I felt like, oh, this, I felt this strange, I can't even describe it. It was this very strange feeling where I realized, oh, people read stories about us. There are people, you know, there are books, there are stories that people would buy that tell, you know, tell us about, tell the reader about our lives. And it just blew me away that the fact that I was so stunned by it at, at 26 years old, but it took that long for me to read a book and not that, you know, I, I don't think I ever even looked because there was nothing to find, you know, and when I saw, I remember going to a library and finding a list of South Asian authors and I, I just devoured the entire list. Like I, I have never been so overjoyed to read, you know, all these different authors from different parts of India, from Pakistan, from, you know, from, from Sri Lanka, amazing books, amazing stories. And I was just, just blown away by the fact that, you know, these haven't been around for so long that I had just found them. I mean, this was years ago. And the difference only was that most of those stories were immigrant stories. But then now, when my, you know, years later, when my daughters were growing up, I realized they still only had access to these immigrant stories, but they weren't immigrants themselves. They just, they grew up here. So to them, those stories, they can't relate to those stories because they've never been really immigrants. They've grown, they were born and raised in, in North America. And so for them, there was this gap. Again, there was a huge chunk missing where there were no stories about teens like them who grew up here, but at home, you know, they, they came from a different culture. Their parents were from a different culture, but they were growing up here. And then those stories were missing. And I have to say, only it's only been a few years, maybe four or five years, that we've seen a few more of these stories coming out. And it almost seems like there's a lot of them coming out. But when you look at the numbers, it's a very, very small percentage. In fact, the number of stories about animals, there, there are more books about animals than there are about people of color. Yeah. And yeah. fewer by people of color. You know, so those statistics are very, I don't know, like, they're very disheartening and and yes we have seen you know that there there has been an increase there have been more books available but still we have a long long way to go i noticed in your bio you said you enjoy writing about teens who straddle cultures why are you so drawn to those stories well mainly like i said you know because of my children because i i see my ch I, I saw my children growing up and reading these books which were never about anyone like them and, you know, they still enjoyed reading those books. But after a while, you have to wonder, like, I mean, you know, where are the stories about all the different teens who are, sec you know, who are second generation, not second generation, but they're the children of immigrants who, you know, and so they at home, they have this rich life with different traditions, different kinds of foods, different outfits, different celebrations. And then outside their home. They, they, they are Americans. So they are, you know, they're, and they're hyphenated Americans. So that means there's, they have these two different spheres of existence almost, but then there's no stories about them. So, you know, uh, and, and I feel like it's, these stories won't just benefit the people who belong in the community. Like you mentioned, 
even the the the, uh, the white children, the white students, white children in the classroom would benefit from reading. I mean, we all like to learn about different cultures, or at least we should we should, and it's it's enjoyable to learn about a different culture, different customs. Uh, if nothing else, just to increase your general knowledge, but also to be to have em- empathy for people who are, you know, maybe in a different situation, who may who may not, you know, people whose parents speak with an accent or who speak multiple languages. It I feel like, you know, if, if this was something that was just the norm where, you know, you include texts that include all kinds of cultural references and cultural stories, it takes away or at least I would think it would decrease the likelihood of, say, bullying or, or, you know, kids being made fun of because, you know, they smell a certain way because the spices that their parents use in their cooking are different from the spices that other kids are using, parents are using in their homes. I mean, there's nothing more hurtful than, you know, sitting in, you know, a third grader or a first grader saying that you smell weird and or, or when you open your lunchbox that, they gag or, you know, the kid besides you, beside you gags because your food isn't familiar to them. Those things can scar you for life, to be honest, you know, um, and kids don't always know how to express those feelings. But then, you know, there's so many repercussions from that kind of behavior. And I just think that though it's, it's important for kids to see themselves, to see that, yes, there are other teens like me we're also doing the same thing so maybe someone from a different whose family is from a different background or immigrant family maybe a little more strict or maybe celebrating different things or may have different values you know and and just because they're different it's hard for these teens to sort of find a balance between you know wanting to do certain things a certain way but having to do them differently because their parents have a different belief system and you know, for for these teens to be able to accept that both both worlds that they exist in are are good, you know, that not one isn't better than the other, and it just I think it's really important to have lots and lots of stories about that, because there are there's are so many different experiences. They see the world through a different lens, and there should be stories to reflect that. How did your childhood impact the stories you choose to tell? Um, so I grew up, I was born in Germany and I lived there for the first eight years of my life. And we lived in a small town and we were the only family of color in that whole town. It was pretty small. And this was back in the early 70s. And I was bullied mercilessly. I mean, I was beaten up. I was pushed. I have scars. I still have scars on my knees and legs to remind me. And, you know, I was called the N-word. I was told that my skin was brown because I was dirty. And as a five, six-year-old, I remember going home, running home in tears and trying to scrub the brown off my skin. And that's that's something that never goes away, like that feeling, that memory, and, and feeling like that when you're that young and not having any adults to support you, like in the schools, just to be called a tattletale because you're trying to get someone's attention when someone's hurting you. Um, That kind of feeling of helplessness and just feeling alone at that young age, it's definitely um, informed my writing. It definitely affects everything I write. It's colored the way I look at the world. Um, Even now, like years and years later, decades later, I still have, you know, those, those feelings never really go away. They really pack a punch, that kind of, behavior it leaves something in you or it it kills something in you almost but it definitely leaves a kind of pain behind and then you see that 
uh, in other people. And you realize that all we want, all any of us want is to be accepted and to be to be seen for who we are, not to be put into these boxes where people can put labels that make them comfortable. We all want to be whoever we are and just to be left in peace, to not be made fun of or hurt or maligned because we look a certain way or we speak a certain way or we worship a certain way, you know? And definitely all of that has um, impacted how I write and what stories I choose to tell. How has the response been to this book? What have you heard from teens who've read the story? I've had a really positive response. And to be honest, when I was writing the book, I was a little bit, I was worried because it's it's a little bit of a controversial topic because there's not a lot of books about queer Muslims, especially teens, uh, out yet. And I was worried about backlash from, you know, from my community, from people who might just be, you know, offended by what I chose to write. But then I realized that, you know, that was a risk that I would have to take and I was willing to take it because it was important to me. Um, so so um, I was very pleasantly surprised when I started getting messages from Muslim teens, private messages from Muslim teens who would tell me how much my book, my story meant, my book meant to them, how much Roxana's story helped them, you know, feel hopeful. And, and some of them were just so happy to see a person, a queer person of color, a Muslim you know, a queer Muslim teen in a story that was, you know, going through similar things that they were going through. And that was the most rewarding um, thing of, of my whole journey. Everything that um, I experienced, this was definitely the most rewarding part of it. And this is the reason I continue to write, because I want more and more teens to see themselves in those stories um, and, and I'm encouraged to see so many authors, you know, um, being published who are writing these stories. And I'm so, so proud that I'm one of them. Thanks so much to Sabina for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you for listening and supporting Writing the Coast and the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. It means a lot to all of us and to the authors and illustrators that you take time to listen. If you're interested in finding out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, why don't you check out our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Next time on the podcast, I introduce you to a new voice. Writer Jason Schurz spoke to Francine Cunningham about her book of poetry, On Me, which is nominated for the Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.